This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America in Houston, Texas. Please join us on Sundays at 8.15 and 10.30 a.m. for Holy Communion and visit us on the web at holytrinityrec.org. Please enjoy the sermon. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? These are the words of Saul in reply to the special treatment that he received that we read today by the prophet Samuel. He, as a young man, is still at the point that he didn't know what was about to happen. That he was about to be anointed king of Israel. In continuing our series for this year in 1 Samuel, here in chapter 9, we see the transition, if you will, from the end of the period of the judges of Israel to now a period of time of being ruled by kings. Before, with the period of the judges, as we see in the book of Judges and the first part of 1 Samuel, God reigned his people directly. He used judges, he used the Levites and the priests to order the day-to-day living of the people, settling disputes, and so forth. Interestingly, the first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon, give us more chapters of Holy Scripture dedicated to each than all the other kings that we, we, we read about in Holy Scripture. Saul actually gets more chapters dedicated to his life and his kingship than King Solomon. This morning, let us focus on this introduction of this young man, Saul, and his life before becoming king. First 14 verses of our chapter speak of Saul looking for his father's beasts of burden, donkeys. As the chapter opens, we learn three things about this young man. He is of the least of the tribes of Israel, the small tribe of Benjamin. He's from a wealthy family. His physical description is given to us in verse 2. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Even his name, the name Saul, means asked for or desired. As we read last week in chapter 8, the people asked or demanded a king. Even after warnings against such a decision, the people remained stubborn to have a king like all the nations around them. Yet even in their demands for Samuel to make this pick of a king, as we read here in chapter 9, God took control of the situation to make this selection. The previous chapter, as we read last week, contained a lot of drama. It ended with Samuel sending all of the people back to their respective towns and cities. Now in chapter 9, we encounter a seemingly everyday, mundane occurrence. Saul's arrival in the life of Israel was not flashy. It was not overbearing. He was from a family of Israel doing an everyday thing for the sake of his family. 
You think about it, God uses everyday things in our lives to teach us of his grace and his mercy. The lesson here for us in this seemingly everyday boring occurrence is that God works in the midst of our time as well. Boring and exciting in our estimation. This is why we must be content in Jesus Christ in all of our situations. This is why it is so important, whether we think we're in a mundane time of life or an exciting time of life, we must cling to his word. We must cling to his church. Israel so often in her history, though, went off track, especially in the mundane times when things were going very well and she sought the enticements of paganism. And we too have the same dangers today, just wrapped in different packaging. But it's the same that Israel faced, enticing us to go away from God. This is where Israel found herself at this time, having demanded a king, and now God sending them a king in Saul. Saul comes upon the scene as an obedient son, tending after the matter of finding two donkeys for his father. We read of his diligence in traveling through four different countries or regions before coming to the land we call Zuf. And at this point in the story, Saul was ready to give it all up. Apparently, they were gone so long that Saul feared his father would become anxious. His father would fear that they were lost. Yet the servant with Saul suggests something different, to go to the prophet Samuel. As we read, he agreed to seek the counsel of God. In some ways, Saul's diligence in seeking what was lost for his family and obedience to his father was a picture of how God seeks us, his lost sheep. Saul was the man God sought as he journeyed long and hard for something that was lost. The section ends with Saul seeing Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. He was on the way to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And the last half of this chapter presents us, I believe, with three key points about this story. First, God told Samuel the day before Saul showed up this in verse 16. Tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And second, God told Samuel this in verse 17. Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. And third, the reply from Saul of this favorable treatment by the prophet. Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? In the first point, God chose Saul to answer the cry of his people facing the hardships of the Philistines again. As we read last week with the dire warning about kings, God here shows that even in the midst of human sin and weakness, he will shine through to aid his people. He does this through making the choice of Saul to relieve them from their enemies. In the second point, we read that Saul was chosen by God as king, as we read, to restrain the people. This word for restrain in this verse means 
to restrain by rule, to rule over someone. It has a similar force behind it that we read in the New Testament from St. Paul speaking about civil magistrates of the civil authority in Romans 13.4. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Israel, as demonstrated in the previous chapter, was on dangerous ground with demanding something even when God warned them against it. Here God, though, is still protecting his people even though he is giving them a king. Yet he does so with a man he chose with the purpose of restraining them from further evil. If you think about it, This was the mark where the days of doing what was right in one's own eyes was coming to an end with the king. From this point on, God would use godly kings to enact godly justice. This was to be Saul's call. The mark of paganism, on the other hand, the mark of what Israel wanted, is the mark of seeking self to the point of wrecking lives around us to get what we want. This was what Israel wanted, but God gave them something different. God called his king here to restrain his people by his word, by his law. The last issue raised by Saul is crucial that we read. Yet his issue is really a non-issue if you really think about it in terms of how God always operated with his people since the beginning. God is not the God of elevating people that we as sinful human beings think best to fit the bill. The operative word here is that God is the God of calling shepherds to shepherd his people. He is not the God of condoning human-centered leadership. Such become tyrants every single time. That is not the way of God. The way of God is to give us shepherds, to guide us, to still waters, to guide us in his law, to love. God chooses, as we read throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the lowest, those the sinful world rejects as leaders. Israel wanted a king just like all the pagan nations around her. But God gave them a king from a source they would never choose if they had the choice. Further, in the minds of all of Israel were the events in their recent past in the last chapters of the book of Judges about how the tribe of Benjamin sinned grievously, the same kind of sins that Sodom and Gomorrah committed. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, as we read in Judges chapter 20 and 21, worthless fellows, as described in this book, sought to commit homosexual acts. They sought to commit rape. They committed rape. They committed murder. When the entire nation gathered in outrage to decide what to do against this tribe of Benjamin, they confronted the elders of Benjamin and they told them to give up these worthless men that have committed these atrocities. And what does Benjamin do? Instead, Benjamin as a whole tribe cast their lot with these sinners and they defended their sin. Because of the civil war that erupted, We read in the last chapters of Judges that only 600 men of Benjamin remained alive. At this point, the nation relented and found women among the other tribes to give to this remnant to be wives. 
so that this one tribe would not die. Interestingly, at the end of these sinful events, at the end of Judges, we read the very last verse of this book foreshadowing what we arrive at in chapters 8 and chapters 9 of 1 Samuel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And for the first king of Israel, God used a man from this very tribe, a tribe severely humbled due to their sin and seeking to defend sin. These events, along with a calling with calling a man from a seeming lost cause to be king, teach us that God redeems us in every situation of life, even when we stick ourselves in the mire. In our own day, we live with vast parts of our country and large segments even of the church stuck in sin that seek to embrace sin and even defend the sin of others, just as in the time of Judges. We are moving away in many ways in our own land from the model of paying for, our, for the consequences of our sins, even in the civil authority. Yes, it may seem like a bleak time, but in the history of God's people, such times are only precursors to what God did with his people repeatedly. Redeem them from the brink of self-wrought destruction. Using people we do not understand from a sinful human perspective. Men such as Saul. Men in the New Testament such as Saul is named Paul that had persecuted the church. Just as God initially used Saul to become the first king, God uses all of us as his people in our day to stand in the faith, to pronounce the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be salt and light, and to remain steadfast in prayer without ceasing. Our lesson today ends with Samuel telling Saul's servant to go ahead and then telling Samuel, or Samuel tells Saul that he will make known to him the word of the Lord. In this Lent, let us stay humbled at God's word and his work within us and in the world around us. We have a mandate from the gospel, from Jesus Christ, to spread his good news of repentance, of forgiveness, of eternal life to everyone we encounter. Yes, even worthless fellows such as the wicked Benjamites, the ancestors of, Paul, of Saul. Yes, even to pronounce his gospel to people willing to defend and support worthless fellows and their right to sin. May we be a people that are ever ready to hear God's word ourselves and to proclaim this gospel with the gentleness of Christ's firm yet merciful love. Amen.